It's the Stuart Lucy podcast. Here we go with stories of teachers that are inspirational. I'm learning everything I know and learning all over again. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning into this episode of the Stuart Lucy podcast. Today, I'm very excited to introduce my next guest, Richard Tudor. Rick has a long list of lifetime achievements, including an Order of Australia medal that he received for service to education and also his community. He still sits on the board of many educational institutions in Melbourne, and he is also one of the directors of the MITS, the Melbourne Indigenous Training School that his son Ed set up not so long ago. We'll speak about that in the podcast. My personal connection to Rick is he was my headmaster at Trinity Grammar School. I have a lot of respect and a lot of admiration for Rick. He's done a lot of things in his career and has influenced me and my career greatly. So I'm very excited to be able to share this episode. We decided to record this podcast in Melbourne's Royal Botanic Gardens. Rick, being a science teacher and a particularly passionate botanist, made it only fitting that this was where we were. The first part of the podcast, we talk a little bit about Rick's enthusiasm and passion for botany as we move into more educational directed questions towards the second half. I hope you enjoy this. It was a really fun day to record and I'm looking forward to sharing this with everyone else. Thank you. Saying that we're in one of the most peaceful and wonderful places in Melbourne, mm. in the Royal Botanic Gardens, and uh, on a glorious day, 25, 26 degrees. You couldn't have planned it better. It really is beautiful, and there are people enjoying all the variety of areas that this garden mm. presents. So, um, just before we set up the mics, you, you were talking about how there are no horizons in this garden. Um, and the architecture is, is such that there are no paths with straight <coughs> lines and you, you can never see the end, which I, I like the idea of being able to be lost. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, that and that, that, was the, that was the Guilfoyle ideal, that he felt he wanted to create a garden which um, created a feeling of infinity, mm. that wherever you looked, your, your eye continued on and was never truncated by buildings or walls yeah. or anything. Yeah, and you, and you look through and you, you get that. You don't know how far back it goes. No. It could be infinite. Yeah, yeah. I particularly like the colours. Um, I think the, when you look at the, you know, we, we often talk about the different colours, the prime colours and green, mixture of blue and yellow, but <clears throat> when you look at the palette of green across that landscape, dark green, bluey green, yellowy green, shiny green, I mean... Uh, enormous number of different greens, aren't they? When you actually sort of stay, and it's created as well. So you got okay. We'll go go a bit deeper now. It's, um, how, how is this all created, and where's the genetic um, blueprint, and how does it know what colour to create? It's, it's interesting, isn't it? That each of these plants <clears throat> has evolved from a different part of the world, mm. with the same particular um, climatic and environmental footprint, and. Um, each of these plants will have evolved over millions of years to be the best survivors in that in that particular area. Extraordinary. And so I'm looking at those <coughs> camellias down there with the shiny leaves and they will have evolved in areas where there was relatively little water and perhaps quite hot conditions and those shiny leaves 
uh, have evolved to reflect the um, heat radiation mm. and so that plant will remain cool um, because of the uh, reflective surface of those leaves. Um, Do you know um, the history of the jacaranda trees, the purple jacaranda Yeah, I, I don't know it. It's, it's um, certainly from it's prolific in New South Wales and mm. southern Queensland. Um, <clears throat> but I don't know, it's a, it's a flowering plant, it's, uh, it, it grows, it, it's certainly increased in its number down here in Melbourne, I think probably over the recent years when it's becoming hotter. So before uh, we started recording, the gardens remind me of Kenya, uh, where I grew up, and that particular tree oh, is all over Kenya. Right. Um, and so when I see the jacaranda tree, that really is quite nostalgic I, for me. And, yeah. Um, I wonder, I know that there are a lot of, um, for instance, the, the gum trees, the eucalypts are introduced into Africa from Australia. That's right. I wonder if that's <coughs> native Australian introduced into Do Africa I, or vice versa. I, I think probably that's it's a very interesting question, mm. um, whether it's come from Kenya initially. Mm. Because, well, it, it, I don't really know. That's mm. a very interesting question. Which way is Which way has it come? I think we should probably find that out after this. We should. <laughs> yeah. Um, we went to China this year. Um, sort of, it's on a, on a similar track. We went to China this year um, as part of school. Um, and learning about China before I went, um, <coughs> I didn't realise just how many species of um, flora came from the Oriental regions and was um, coveted by particularly English colonials. And that spread. There, um, all through yeah. the world. Yeah. Uh, and I was fascinated about that and how a lot of the ornamental flowers are Chinese. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And of course, the <clears throat> when you look at the land masses and the way the, the land masses have moved over over the millions of years, um, of course, <clears throat> South Africa was very much joined with Australia. Mm. So a lot of the plants mm. from South Africa look not dissimilar to those from Australia. Course, They're the same, probably the same families, uh, classes. Um, and certainly the, the baobab tree is very similar mm. to, the, um, to the equivalent in uh, South Africa. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, if you look at the geological formations, diamonds <laughs> were discovered in Australia only because <clears throat> people put the geological maps together and, and uh, of course um, diamonds have been found in fairly prolific quantities in South Africa, the Beers diamonds, mm. and uh, they predicted that they should occur in the northern part of Western Australia. Uh, and when they did some digging they of course found that they were there and the Argyle diamond pipe um, was developed through that particular line of research. Okay. So it was really by matching the strata and uh, geological configurations in both the countries, knowing that they've moved apart. So that um, is the theory, I, I always figured that the, the Australian bite would, would have joined into the African continent um, like a jigsaw piece into South Africa. Is that not right? So. I would have assumed that whatever was found in South Africa would have been found in South Australia in the Bight. I, I think it was more the west coast of Australia uh -huh, okay. had moved, came from the east coast of oh, South okay, Africa. Yeah, I see, I see. Um, <clears throat> and, and certainly your baobab trees are up yeah. there and the 
Kimberley and mm -hmm. um, in that area, which would have connected with parts of South yeah, of Africa. Course, yeah. And uh, Baobab diamonds. trees are nicknamed the upside down tree. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like someone pulled them out of the ground and then stuck them yeah. upside down. Yeah. Um, I love the baobab trees. It's yeah. They get really big. But it, it, it's interesting looking at the <clears throat> uh, the uh, family of wattles mm. and wattle-related plants are, mm. are very similar in South Africa. That's right, yeah. Look, and we have them introduced, that is an, an introduced species into Kenya from Australia. Is that right? Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. A friend of ours um, had wattles on their farm. Is that right? Um, and proceeded, because I was Australian, to educate me about the, the wattle tree. Right. Um, and yeah, he let me know that that's uh, introduced from Australia. Isn't that interesting? Mm. So it's... And, and as you say, eucalypts have become very ubiqu ubiquitous. They've they now are growing in South South Africa, and mm -hmm. a, a lot of them in California. You They're see enormous numbers in California. Do you? Mm. Is that what helps uh, the, the bushfires going on in California currently? Are they well, it's more conifer forests, but yeah, certainly okay. the eucalypts would be in there as well. Mm. So they're highly flammable with the very oil. The uh, the the oils, which are terpenes. And they, <clears throat> the problem with the terpenes is they vaporise mm -hmm. even before the fire gets there, mm -hmm. and and then the the fire then burns the gas, yeah. the terpene gas in the air, rather than the actual um, uh, material here, you know, oh, right. wood, wood yeah, and yeah. Uh, wood why material. So, so prolific and devastating. When yeah. Through. So that the that. that the gas is actually <clears throat> makes its own fire. Mm -hmm. And wow. Okay. So it's a fireball. So it's a fireball. So it's going across quickly and yeah, and more uh, more prolifically than even the burning wood, which which of course burns, but yeah, burns behind. Wow. Um, so that's why Australian fires are so um, devastatingly yes, hot. Yeah. Um, and and of course the. Um, <clears throat> In America, I mean, the, the the hot temperatures at this time of the year are unprecedented. Mm. Here we are in December, and there are mm. massive fires in California, mm. where normally you'd expect temperatures in California to be 14 or 15. I remember being there 30 years ago; that was about the level. And to have temperatures which are creating or encouraging these enormous fires is that uh, it's quite climate different. change. Is this um, is this something that um, what, what are your opinions on it? And well, I think it? climate is definitely changing. If you look at that, that that's that, that was never heard of when I was sort of um, there 30 years ago. Uh, the idea of a fire in December was just bizarre. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but uh, a whole lot of other, you know, indicators about climate change. For example, <coughs> the, the the bird life. Um, more recently, we've. Um, my wife, Liz, has heard a, a, a bird called the coal, K-O-E-L, mm -hmm. which is a lovely melodic tone, which mm. has only been ever seen um, well north of Victoria and on the east coast there. But now it's hit down here in Faulkner Park. Oh, cool. So the climate has become warmer. Yeah. That's okay. why these yeah, birds yeah. are moving. So they're moving. able to live in able to live That's in. interesting, isn't it? Like small little knock-on effects and then what does that do to the ecosystem? Yeah. Is there a place for a, a 
call to be in this part and how yeah. will that affect the other birds and exactly you get the competitive edge and so on and so forth and um, <clears throat> the real butterfly effect isn't it really so, is it's very so the um, and of course the other one was when we were in PNG going to Ferguson Island um, to Salamo which is um, community up on the north above the north coast of New Guinea um, their villages were being flooded not infrequently mm. and they were saying and again I don't, don't I haven't studied the science but <clears throat> they were saying that these floods you had to walk through water at certain times of the day up to your calf muscle to get from one village to the other whereas these villages were, were always built on land which was well mm. above that mm. And that's happened in the last 20 years or so. So, There's an island, um, I think, near Fiji or in, or in that region of the world in the Pacific um, where the water has started to come up through the actual island itself. Have you heard yeah, of it? Yeah, I I, I've, um, I've heard of it, but I don't know much about it. No. Mm. So <coughs> during the tides, yeah. it, it comes out through the ground. Yeah. A lot of houses are flooding not because of floods but because, but because of, the, of the rising seas yeah and yeah the tides are starting to come up through yeah I thought that was that's alarming as well and it's again we, we talk about being lucky to be here yeah uh, in melbourne yeah um yeah, just to think that oh your house is now going to start flooding because yeah. because of because actions of the, around the world yeah I think that, that starts to to wake you up a bit as well and you, you know, they always predicted with climate change you'd get these catastrophic <clears throat> storms. And and certainly, I, you know, as a kid, we we had the odd storm, and it was short, and then it would go away. But the, like the one recently, with a massive amount of rain, 100 mils in 24 hours, is and the very very significant humidity that precedes mm. that, mm. is very different from the climate that I can remember as a as a kid. Mm. Um, and and that's certainly changed. I mean, Melbourne in many in ma- on many occasions is not like unlike Sydney used to be. The very humid, hot mm, climate. Mm. We've just had a couple of weeks of yeah. very heavy rain followed by some quite intense heat and very, that created the humidity. Yeah. So it, it's it's all going on, and I think the uh, climate is changing. And <clears throat> as I think I said to you last time, it, it will change inevitably because. The natural cycles of the mm. uh, the world are such that these cyclic changes go on anyway. Yeah. But on top of that, you, of course, you're getting the greenhouse effect. Yeah. So you're actually adding to the uh, mm. cyclic change by the greenhouse effect. But that's always a question that I have: is is if you know I don't know much about this, but I've I've looked back at history. Like we've had two ice ages, and we've gone through the the formation of the world and the dinosaurs and. What, how much of that is just a natural cycle, and how much of it is human involved? Well, I think do you that, think I think it's um, <clears throat> a lot of that is natural cycle, and when you say natural cycle, it <clears throat> really refers to um, uh, various events, um, universal or earth-focused events which together cause the climate to change. Now, I'm not an expert in climate, but for example, um, uh, 
you know, they often say that the, uh, the demise of the dinosaurs was because of a, a meteor that came mm. across and, and spread all sorts of um, um, non-transparent gases and mm. particles in the atmosphere and so that the <clears throat> sun was blocked out so plants just couldn't grow. Mm-hmm. And so dinosaurs that were plant eaters by and large mm-hmm. had uh, nothing much to feed on. Mm-hmm. So they, that's when they started to die out. Mm. <clears throat> but um, they say that a lot of these sort of um, meteorological changes depends on the position of the sun compared with the earth, the mm. distance, the, uh, the juxtaposition of the planets. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole host of different factors mm. which are ultimately very complex, which then cause <clears throat> climate on earth to change Mm -hmm. and as you know that research I did in the western district which showed um, that those lakes in the western district which are now twice as salty as seawater two and a half times as salty as seawater um, were in fact fresh back four and a half thousand years ago and if you go back another four and a half thousand years it becomes they became they were very salty Mm. again in fact they were drying up Mm. so you've got this natural cyclic change of climate where 9,000 years ago it was very hot, lakes were evaporating, uh, <clears throat> it was a very hot period and then you got the uh, very wet climate about four and a half thousand years ago which, which went across the earth, it went across into China, it went across into Mesopotamia, it was in the Western District, it was in Western Australia and so there was a common factor around the the changing, <clears throat> the the very wet era that occurred at that stage, and um, and then of course since then things have been getting um, uh, hotter and drier again, and we're now in into a fairly much we, we're almost into the peak of that hot dry time type of period, mm. and you, you'd expect that if you and I were coming back in four and a half thousand years, which we probably won't, <laughs> uh, we'd be experiencing a much wetter. Um, climate than we would be at the moment. So I think the research I did and certainly connected with other research showed this natural cyclic change of recent years, the last 10,000 years and uh, I didn't study it beyond that but Mm -hmm. presumably there are good studies that show the same sort of thing beyond that. so, <coughs> talking about your studies, you're, you're a science teacher. I'm a science so teacher. First yeah. and foremost. What, yeah, I'm a botanist. And a botanist. So, yeah. I was going to say, what, what, is, what was your drive behind science? Where did you start picking up your, your passion for it? And, and so, botany being your, your focus, are there any other areas of the scientific world that you're particularly well, keen on? Yeah, it's interesting to ask the question that you don't tend to reflect on what you've done no. until after you've done it. Um, I, I found I was a very average student at school. I worked hard, but I was average in the results I achieved. And I'd chosen sciences and maths, and uh, I found the chemistry and physics pretty hard going. Well, I, I failed chemistry in my first year, year 12. I had to do year 12 again. And then passed it um, with some with some good learnings about how to study in the <laughs> second year because the first year was a bit of a uh, non-event in terms of effective study. 
Um, I'm going to write a note on that. I'm going to ask you a question on that. But the, um, I always remember doing electrolysis in chemistry and being interested in electrolysis, going right back to year eight, mm. looking at the two tubes and the way water could be electrolyzed into oxygen and hydrogen. Mm. And <clears throat> then to, to get to first university and for the person who was lecturing us to, uh, to stand up and talk about a plant cell as being like a little electrolysis cell where the sunlight was generating the power that drove this cell and that electrons moving backwards and forwards between uh, water and hydrogen and oxygen um, had the same effect as electrolysis in those two glass tubes. Mm. And of course what, what you see in a plant leaf with chlorophyll is you see the production of oxygen. and. Uh, uh, that there are also some free radical hydrogens that are released and electrons are passed um, across um, from, one, from one compound to another in that process. And electrons are actually energised by the, by the light. Mm. So, uh, <clears throat> and of course, those electrons then are used to generate ATP. ATP is then used to provide the energy source for the building up of cellulose and lignin and everything that's and all the material that you see in a plant. And yeah. You say to a young person, you see that huge tree there, you say, the whole of that tree came from water from the earth, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and sunlight and a few minerals. Hmm. And kids sort of look at you as if you're uh, talking nonsense. but. Hmm. You say, well, just think about it. And it's quite true that mm. that huge tree standing in front of us there, which must be over 100 years old, mm. all has come from water, from the soil, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and sunlight. But <clears throat> I guess, going back to the, your question, to me as a youngster, hearing about plants and plant cells as an electrolytic cell, uh, where sunlight was being used to generate the whole process of electrolysis where oxygen was produced and free radical hydrogens and so on. To me that was absolutely fascinating. Mm. Mm. That a process which I had been used to seeing in a glass, in glass tubes with uh, a plug and an, an electrical supply could actually happen and be replicated inside a living green plant cell. Mm. And that, that was fascinating. That, that really, it still excites me that, that that actually takes place. And it's going on across the whole spectrum of all the plants that we're looking at now. Under our feet. Under our feet. Mm. And so that was where I got a real feeling of interest in botany. I thought, you know, mm -hmm. botany is... And then I started to understand that, you know, of course, micro um, specimens, plankton, was the basis of the food chains of the world um, and was the fundamental source of all the oxygen or well, most of the oxygen of the world comes from the microplankton, mm. phytoplankton and, um, and uh, the uh, <clears throat> wonderful variety of plant adaptations again became very 
exciting to me to see the way in which plants mm. had adapted their structures or were adapted in order to um, give themselves a maximum chance of survival. So that was where that interest came from. And then when I um, went on in my studies in botany, I loved botany. I just, it was just one of those things I really enjoyed. And um, what I, uh, when I came to do my research, which was to work on diatoms, and diatoms are little single-celled algae, green algae, um, and uh, their unique characteristic is that they, their cell walls are actually made of the same stuff as glass. Wow. So their cell walls are silicon dioxide, not cellulose like all these trees and plants around here. Right. And, and the, the business about that is that <clears throat> because the walls of these little microplankton diatoms um, is made of glass, they survive for literally 20, 30, 40, 50,000 years, many, many thousands of years. So you can dig them up 50,000 years later and, and still identify them. They still have their characteristic form and shape and right. can be identified in terms of their species and genera and so on. Right. And so I got into studying diatoms mm. and <clears throat> my supervisor obviously guided me in this but he he was keen for me to look at the the way diatoms living in water and every water body in this world has diatoms if you go down to the the lake in the botanic gardens you'll find probably 15 species of diatoms growing in the water if you go to the Yarra River you'll find diatoms are they visible or not necessarily only under the microscope because okay. they're micro yeah, okay. so you've got you you've got to prepare them put them in a glass slide and yeah. look at them under the microscope. Yeah. But if you go to the, um, the Kurong Lagoon, which has water which is, uh, comes in from the Murray River, which is fresh, you'll have a certain complement of diatoms, different a, a set of diatom species. If you move up the Kurong Lagoon towards uh, Salt Creek and the water's getting saltier and saltier and saltier, the diatom uh, collections will change. The, the genera and species will change because in salt water, which is two or three times as salty as seawater, um, other certain species of diatom will survive best. Mm. Whereas down in the freshwater, different species will survive best. Mm. So you're looking at the the complement of diatoms which survive best in those different water environments. So I, I studied <coughs> diatoms in my honours year and was able to define a relationship between the generic makeup of diatom communities. Let's say you go to a lake and you take your net and you, 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 you catch, you bring out a, a sample of diatoms, prepare them and you identify say 15 or 16 different genera or species. But, you, but um, I was working at the generic level. In other words, a genus has um, uh, a number of species that belong to it. Mm -hmm. Genus is a bigger group. Mm -hmm. It's a less, uh, if you like, focused group. Um, so I, I looked at genera, and what I did was found that the, if you looked at the collection of genera in water, of fresh water, um, brackish water, salty water, hypersaline water, you could actually uh, work out a linear relationship 
um, between the the types of diet and genera that were represented and the salt content of that water. Mm. So you'll find, for example, freshwater diatoms growing in the uh, alpine uh, creeks and lakes and rivers um, are very characteristic of alpine freshwater type water bodies. And if you go to a similar freshwater water body in New Zealand, uh, you'll find um, similar diatoms, similar generic compositions growing in those sites so in New Zealand. If, if you go to England and you go to um, uh, <coughs> freshwater bodies which are in um, more elevated areas, mm. you'll find similar generic um, when you say similar, will they still be unique to that area? Um, yeah. Look, the, the, the general will be uh, similar. So that let, yeah. let's say that in the Victorian High Plains, you've got a creek, you might have genera A, B, C, D. Mm-hmm. You might find that, that those four genera are also present in a, uh, an alpine stream in New Zealand, mm-hmm. on the, um, perhaps on the Harris Saddle or somewhere. Mm-hmm. You may then find it's those four genera are represented in a water body in um, of a creek in Scotland mm. um, which may be lower in its altitude mm. <clears throat> um, whereas the New Zealand one is higher Victorian one is not as high but they're all alpine mm-hmm. they're all fresh and they all show similar they all show similar similar diatom um, genera mm. so <clears throat> anyway we, we, we worked out that relationship and then the second year we extended that study a bit, made it a bit more firm in its um, conclusion, and and then we cored. We took the cores of two Western District lakes, Crater Lakes, mm-hmm. which are about 20 metres deep now. They're twice as salty as seawater. Lake Keelanbeet and Lake Notuck. And we cored them. We brought up a, um, a two and a half metre core, which represents about 10,000 years mm-hmm. in its sediments. All right, yeah, I've seen. And we, we then, I took those cores back to the laboratory and extracted the dye, the, the mud, mm-hmm. took the mud out centimetre by centimetre down that core. Right on. And did the, did the two cores. And then then spent the next two or three months um, uh, preparing the diatoms for examination under the microscope and identifying the diatom genera in those different levels and what you're able to do is to because of the the study that we've done present day we knew that if you've got diatoms a b x y mm. that you're probably going to be looking at water of salinity six mm. or seven grams per litre mm. if you came up with a similar um, complement of diatom genera in the core let's say down 30 35 centimetres you could say well probably the water at that time um, <clears throat> was about six or seven grams per litre. Hmm. So your present day information helped you to interpret the fossil information and, and it helped you to draw conclusions about the way in which the lake had changed in its salinity over 10,000 years. Hmm. So that was the basis of... Um, uh, and, and then you came up with that exciting graph where you could actually graph the salinity of that lake. Hmm over 10,000 years by the fact that you 
study the diatoms at the different levels. Mm. And and you, very clearly these lakes, you know, dry, wet, dry. You've got this cyclic um, pattern, um, which you know was seen to be walking behind us. <laughs> So, so that was the other, and, th and that was very exciting. It was very exciting to find the freshwater phase in these hot saltwater lakes mm. about four and a half thousand years ago, and to understand that that was also when the Yangtze Valley was flooding in mm. China. It was when the Mesopotamian floods, you know, the Noachian floods, were occurring in um, Mesopotamia, and they were all similar mm. at a similar time. And <clears throat> at the same time, in Western Australia, the eucalypts were changing um, immeasurably by uh, where eucalyptus calophylla, which is a dry weather eucalypt, around about it was populating a lot of Western Australia before four and a half thousand years ago. Whereas when you got to that four and a half thousand year mark, uh, eucalyptus calophylla was sta started, started to be replaced by eucalyptus diversicolor, which is the carry gum, which is a has a much more requires a much more wet weather type environment mm. so the eucalypts changed very significantly at mm. that time as well so it, it it connected together when you so look at look together a jigsaw, pe uh, jigsaw puzzle yeah and so that that was an exciting part of botany and i've i've maintained my collections my diatom collections i've got about mm. two thousand slides and they're all wow. up in the herbarium there, oh, cool. um, they're all catalogued, and um, they're just waiting for somebody like me now to spend lots of hours uh, photographing the diatoms under the uh, the new microscopes they have here, mm. which which then can feed them into databases and store the images and so on. And uh, one day I might get round to doing that. I don't really have time at the moment, but You're very busy. it's um, that would be an interesting thing to do to actually to. Um, uh, <coughs> set up a database of diatom genera which live in certain water bodies and to have that all caught, actually recorded mm -hmm. on your um, within the database of a computer mm -hmm. and able to be accessed at any time by mm -hmm. anybody. Information is power. It, so it is, yeah. What, um, what would scientists now um, so using that diatom uh, reference, what could scientists use that information to do? Well, the, uh, we, we, <clears throat> we took a record of all the sites that we, we sampled, and those sites spanned across South Australia, across Victoria, Tasmania and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And so if you came back in 100 years' time and re-sampled those sites, mm. um, you could see whether the diatom genera, the complement of diatom genera, was changing. Okay, yeah. And if you came back in another 200 years, uh, was it changing in the same direction still? Yeah, okay, yeah. So your longitudinal studies. Yeah, okay, I see. By the way, that's the coal. That's the coal. Uh, that, that one. Yeah. That's the coal. So I hear him in Faulkner Park, but he's obviously yeah. come across here. So yeah, and so that <clears throat> baseline data and, and longitudinal study is very important in understanding how climate is changing. For example, if, if you've got a site where the diatoms are now fresh, let's say it's 
in some river, the Goulburn River or something, and a hundred years' time you've got clearly diatoms that are showing it's it's actually quite brackish, mm. around about four or five grams per litre. Mm. And then you come back in another hundred years and it's actually saline. Um, the diatom uh, <coughs> types are, are saline diatom types. Then you've, you've got a very clear indication that climate is tra- changing and water, water bodies are becoming saltier and, and uh, less fresh and so on. Yeah, I mean just, just listening to, I'm not a botanist and I'm not a science teacher but I'm drawn into listening because there's a passion there and I'm fascinated because, because of that energy um, and I suppose that that's natural teaching. What what then was your move from being a scientist to, to wanting teacher. to share that? Yeah. Um, well, I think you, when you develop a passion for something, you you want to share it. Mm. Some people do. Some people do. Yeah. Um, I, I'd always wanted to teach from about year eleven onwards. Okay, so quite young. I enjoyed talking with people. I enjoyed planning things. I enjoyed. Um, uh, conveying messages mm-hmm. and sharing messages mm-hmm. so and uh, and that just was a naturally enjoyable sort of activity for me so mm-hmm. it was it was a, a teacher of mine in year 11 and I had thought of teaching probably from year 10 year 9 who knows mm-hmm. not very seriously but we were bumping through the forest on a cadet camp and uh, Bill Dickinson was his name he was my chemistry teacher in fact, he's the father of Max van Arnholt, or grandfather. Really? And uh, Hugo van Arnholt. Right, yeah, yeah. And he was my chemistry teacher. So Hugh, he, Hugo is my student now. Is he really? Yeah. Goodness me. How about that? Well, his grandfather was highly influential in bringing me to the point of saying, yes, I really do think I want to teach. Yeah. So we're in the forest and we're going to pick up water. It's about 10 o'clock at night and I'm a cadet and he's a member of staff at Melbourne Grammar. And uh, he said, what, what do you think you'd like to do later on? And I said, oh, I don't know. I've, um, various things have gone through my mind. And he said, well, have you ever thought of teaching? And uh, I said, oh, well, actually I have, but never really sort of seriously crystallised that in my mind and he said well I think you'd be a very good teacher Mm. and that was back in year 11 Mm. um, probably in 1964 Mm. and uh, from that point on I thought I really do want to teach so in a sense the botany was a bit of a diversion and I could have gone on and done long-term research and lectured in botany in fact, when I finished my Masters in Botany, my supervisor, who was a wonderful woman called Dr. Sophie Ducker, um, German woman, older, she was Jewish, and um, she was in Dresden in Germany and saw the writing on the wall and she and her husband, she and her family, I think, came out of Germany in 1937 mm. and came across the world to Australia because by the time they got to Australia the Second World War was on so they were interned and uh, <clears throat> she was a graduate in botany in, from a German university when she came to Australia nobody would recognise her degree 
So after the war she had to, she started again as a lab assistant, having been a graduate, and gradually worked her way up and got her Masters of Botany and a Master of Science, and then in the end became, uh, was awarded a uh, honorary doctorate of science. But she was an interesting woman, and uh, she... Um, uh, she brought with her a lot of uh, enormous understanding of people, although she could be a bit cantankerous. She did understand people, and uh, she was a very good scientist. And <clears throat> at the end of my master's, she said, Rick, you, you must do a PhD. And I said, well, no, I want to go off and teach. It's something I've always wanted to do. And she said, oh, you know, you must do a PhD. Um, and uh, the prof came to me and he said, look, you must do a PhD. You've only got to do... In fact, you could use your master's. You've only got to do another year or so and you'd have a PhD. I said, well, no, thank you, but I, I really have always committed myself to teaching. Mm. So we had this, these long discussions about me doing a PhD and offering me a lecturership in the, uh, in the department. And, but I stuck with my studentship so I did my dip ed and then went off and taught in the western district and um, so I went teaching and I think much to her disappointment I think she would have liked me to keep keep going and I probably could have kept going but uh, I think my professional passion was to be a teacher mm. but the the area of my passion of course was was biological science and in the end I picked up much more about human physiology and zoology mm. and so mm. on, so it broadened out. Mm. And um, <clears throat> to give her credit, she remained a good friend till she passed away at the age of about 95. In fact, I spoke at her um, service at the end, and uh, but she, um, she respected the fact that I had gone teaching and she kept wanting to come out and see the schools that I was involved in and talk to me about which was very decent of her, you know, because she could have sort of um, wiped me off the slate. Mm. You know, <laughs> I hadn't gone and done done the research. Done she so, <clears throat> and you know, forty years later, um, never regretted teaching at all. Mm. Uh, that, that's where I think I was really meant to be, and I think it was what I had a great passion for. Loved young people, loved shaping young people and helping to shape them, not really doing that, doing very much of that, but just um, walking with them. I suppose that was a better, better way of putting it, walking with young people on their journey of learning, mm. their journey of growing up, their journey of life. And uh, that, that was a, a sort of activity of significant enjoyment for me, but, but also something which I saw as being worthwhile. If you could influence people in a positive way. So, um, but but the botanical area, being a passion of mine also, was something that it wasn't difficult to teach because when you were teaching about the ferns or the lichens or the way in which the seeds develop and then germinate and the chemical processes going on inside the seed, it was so easy to be enthusiastic. Mm. Mm. And, and in the end, I wonder, often wonder, and probably it wasn't the fact that the seed had 
stores of carbohydrate which then would mobilise and feed the new seedling that would grow up out of the seed or I often wonder whether it was those facts that sort of drew young people in or whether it was the the sense of energy that you could convey because of the passion that you had yourself. It has to be both, doesn't it? I think it's got to be both. You can't have one without the other. I think you're right. You can get a very knowledgeable person who could talk to you all day about something but without the energy behind it. That's right. Um, And and likewise, I think you can get a lot of energy uh, without much knowledge and that doesn't work very well. It doesn't work either. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to have something there, haven't you? Yeah, definitely. And... uh, so I've always been a, I've, I've always <clears throat> valued um, uh, information, knowledge, mm-hmm. understanding, um, but also valued process, the way in which you understand things, the way in which you um, ask questions, the way you lead from questions to hypotheses and to final conclusions. Mm-hmm. So I've always valued both of those Australia in the early 70s went very much towards the process side of teaching biology mm-hmm. and in fact there were exams that I looked at which you could pretty much pass without knowing much about biology but you you had a good understanding of process mm-hmm. you could really um, you could really nail it mm-hmm. and I think that was probably a, ba- a bad balance and I think that the balance came back later on to a more content-driven um, mm. program, but also had the process elements in it as well. I think you having a balance of both those was important. And certainly the book that Liz and I wrote on human physiology and social biology had a lot of content in it, but it was content that we tried to embed in uh, good process understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and we tried to simplify some of the medical concepts that um, were often out of reach of most people. We've tried to sort of simplify them and bring them to a, um, to a level of being able to be communicated mm-hmm. um, clearly and easily mm-hmm. to, to, um, to people who were, who were in the learning game. Mm-hmm. So and that all that was exciting, the, the business of writing books and writing new courses. I did a lot of writing in the late 70s and early 80s and lots of new programs. For example, I did a, uh, just a simple one, a, an excursion through the Botanic Gardens and all sorts of sheets and um, earmarked different plants to look at and ask questions and had kids sort of moving through and, and, and answering those questions. We I used to take a group of boys Melbourne Grammar um, out in the holidays most holidays we'd go somewhere interesting in terms of the environment uh, it may be the Western District Lakes it may be in the Victorian High Plains it may have been the Grampians it may have been mm. French Island it may have been um, <clears throat> uh, all sorts of places and you'd um, you'd study the various plants and animals in that area and often you were studying your actual observations were quite new because nobody had been out on that particular peak in the Grampians and mm. looked at those particular plants mm. in that particular way. And so we had the kids writing up journals and, and getting the information together and, and then doing little presentations on their 
uh, on their research. For example, um, <clears throat> there are some little grevilleas that grow on the side of Signal Peak, which is at the south end of the Grampians. And if you go there in September, you'll find that the ones lower down are actually flowering mm. because it's been warmer. Mm. And if you walk up that slope, which would be, you know, it would take you two or three hours to walk up the slope and it's probably a couple of thousand feet, <clears throat> you find that the number of flowers per plant was diminishing as you went up. And look, it's only a very simple concept. And you, you'd say, well, that's pretty obvious. And you get to the top and there are grevillea plants with no flowers because it's cold and exposed. Mm. And they'll come later when the climate warms up. Mm. But mm. to to actually record that and perhaps photograph it as you went up and then oh, to bring it together in a table and to describe it and then to um, postulate as to what was happening. Why were there more flowers actually in bloom lower down than up, up top? What further research could you do? So it was all those sorts of things were part of the, uh, part of the study. Mm. And it was great fun and we, we looked at flowers, we looked at uh, we, I remember we picked up a snake that had been run over on the on the road, and <clears throat> we brought it into the camp, and um, had a couple of kids studying the snake, and uh, it, the heart hadn't been run over, so the heart was actually still beating. The snake, I think, the, the head had been run over. Mm -hmm. So it was um, um, it was still alive but not um, not able to sense anything mm. and uh, what we did was to um, warm the uh, warm the snake up and you'd see the heart rate go from two beats per minute to 10 to 20 25 wow. see the heartbeat then you call it down again and the heart rate would go right back to about two a minute in the end it stopped because you ran out of um, food. Yeah. It was quite a fascinating in that we, we didn't do the thing any more harm than, than had been done to it because mm. it had been run over. But to look at those relationships between mm. in a cold-blooded poikilothermic animal um, to see how its um, metabolic rate could vary in terms of mm. temperature mm. Um, influence was quite was quite fascinating. We. Another one was we um, we looked at water quality all the way up the Wellington River and took diatom samples and looked at the salinity and pH changes and we we uh, we walked up up the slopes of um, Pass La Cola and looked at the different eucalypts growing in different bands up there and identified those mm. and then made some conclusions about what types of eucalypts they were why were some evolving why had they evolved and, or why had they they become prolific in those different bands so it was very interesting very cool and uh, but all the time and I think it was something that I said to the boys the last assembly I, I said never stop asking questions in life continue to ask questions mm. continue to wonder why continue to find out never be satisfied to sit back and, and look at something and say well I, there it is to ask questions and and I think I sang a bit of Bob Dylan and he, he had that um, blowing in the wind which was about mm -hmm. asking questions and so um, that, that's a very scientific approach 
but also just it's a great idea for life in, in life just to ask questions yeah. yeah and I think when you we always say to our mitz kids Aboriginal kids when you so meet talk somebody about mitz just quickly like, well cool. well mitz uh, is a little Aboriginal transition school for year seven students and um, uh, the, the board of MITS is chair of the board is Liz, my wife, and myself. Edward is the executive director of MITS. Your son. Our son. And uh, Meg, daughter. And then we've got Margaret Webb, who was head of Tarrac College for a number of years. And we've got Stephen Russell, who's head of St Kevin's. And uh, <clears throat> we've got Stephen Cooper, who is um, a Trinity parent. Um, he's um, uh, a very competent accountant, financial planner, financial advisor. Um, we've got um, an Aboriginal woman, Katrina Penfold, again she's a Trinity parent. Mm-hmm. We've got Hilary Dixon who had her own um, <coughs> executive search firm uh, for years and years and sold that recently and came on board with us at MITS. Uh, so it's a very, it's a very competent uh, board um, with people with all sorts of skill sets. Um, but these kids come down. We bring them down from remote communities around Australia, uh, and they spend a year with us at Year Seven, and then we place them in schools at Year Eight. So they go off into various mainstream schools at Year Eight, and we try and pair the kids with the kind of school that's going to be the best environment for that child. It's very sporty, perhaps he goes to a Melbourne Grammar or a Trinity, if he's um, not so, she is not so geared in that direction, maybe a, a Kingswood. Um, so different schools um, have different strengths and we try and uh, line the kids up with those strengths. Um, <clears throat> The whole of MITS, the Indigenous Transition School, came out of observing that kids were coming down to Melbourne schools, including Trinity, and many were finding that after the first six months or year, it was all too hard, and the the academic gap was too big between what they were used to and the school's academic level. And um, we found that um, culturally, they they found that the cultural gap between a remote community in Melbourne was enormous. They found that very challenging. Mm-hmm. So we felt that by providing a, a, a sort of close, um, small, intimate environment for one year where we could really focus on literacy and numeracy and support the kids as they made that cultural transition um, to a Melbourne-type environment was what we should be doing. So that was where the idea of a transition school came in. And one of the things we had to be committed to we wanted to be committed to was ensuring that these kids remain connected with their own communities Mm. when they were brought down to Melbourne we didn't want them to be severed from their communities and what we wanted to see was these kids genuinely as time goes on walking in two worlds our kids down here are pretty lucky because they have to walk in one world and they do that pretty well Mm. but these kids have to walk in both the Aboriginal world and the the world of white people, modern white people. Mm. So 
that's where and so we we uh, secured a 25 year lease on a building in the Vaucluse up near Richmond up on Richmond Hill there near St Ignatius Church uh, we built another unit behind the the old building so we have 11 girls and 11 boys on that site they board there um, they're well supported by <clears throat> good boarding staff some of whom are Aboriginal um, and every day they walk down as a group down to the Richmond Football Club where we lease some of the rooms from the Richmond Football Club where they do their lessons and uh, they do that in the Corringamadji Institute in Richmond in the Richmond Football Club and and the the whole business of using the Richmond Club rooms has become a lot more than just using their rooms the the Richmond Football Club have really taken on mitts by way of partnership it's been extraordinary to the effect that uh, the kids sometimes go out on the oval if the players are training or mm. players will come into their assemblies and speak to them uh, recently the players all came up for lunch to the building near St Ignatius um, and uh, Captain Trent Cotchen and uh, Alex Rance and Dusty Martin, mm -hmm. uh, who's so good with the kids, I've got to say, he's a wonderful, wonderful person with those children. Mm. They absolutely love being with him. It's not mm. just idolising him because he's Brownlow and Coleman Medal and so on or whatever, um, <clears throat> but he, he genuinely has a, a connection with those kids. Mm. They sense that. Mm. So <clears throat> that's our MITS um, school and uh, we're moving into our third year next year. Mm -hmm. um, uh, selecting kids for the school is going to become a more difficult thing because in the first year we had 25 applicants for the 22 places. Mm -hmm. Last year 35 applicants. This year 65 applicants oh, wow. for yeah. 22 places. So how are we going to sort these kids out? Mm. And at the back of our mind, it is that we are not able to select all the kids. So what happens to them? Mm -hmm. Should we be scaling this and starting another centre somewhere mm. for kids at a slightly different level? Who knows? Those are sort of things we've got to mm. keep in mind as we move forward. Mm. Um, so uh, what we've found is that as the kids have moved into the mainstream schools around Melbourne, and we've now got, I think, 13 mainstream schools who have taken on kids, Aboriginal kids from MITS, including uh, Templestowe College, a government school. We, we hope there'll be more, more government schools in the future. But what the schools are saying to us is that the kids have um, moved into the schools exceptionally well, uh, socially, and in terms of the way in which they've adjusted. Uh, we've got to keep working at the academic Mm -hmm. areas because the academic wasn't quite as high as, as the schools expected and perhaps we expected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, some of these kids are bright enough and work hard and will go through to year 12 and maybe to university but some kids may well branch out at uh, year 10 and do VCAL and VET programs and so on and I think what we've had to do is we've had to work very closely with the schools and supporting them as they've taken on these kids. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things we can do as a MITS organisation. We've continued to have the students come back to MITS 
to reconnect with other Aboriginal students in MITS. So we want to continue to develop a community of young Aboriginal people at MITS. And we, um, we've found that um, we've had to give the schools you know, significant help in terms of their, the support structures they have for these MITS kids um, and uh, the budgets they have to um, designate to support them and so on. <clears throat> and so next year we have, uh, I think, almost two staff members who have been um, designated to stay in touch with MITS kids when they move into the schools. So just to check that they're okay and mm -hmm. is there a problem and can we help? Mm -hmm. And also to maintain contact with the school. So if a school has a, a school type issue with a kid, then we can help support that. Okay. So we hope that we're supporting a whole range of schools in this venture. It's not just mm. bringing kids in at Year 7 at MITS. It's quite exciting. It's still very young. and uh, you know, I'm excited to see in a couple of years' time yeah. how it grows and it'll be, uh, how it evolves. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see in four or five years' time. And what, what we've had to do is explain to school that success might be VCAL at Year 10 yeah. or University at Year 12. Yeah. Who knows? And, uh, so so there, we've got two uh, at Trinity at the moment, um, Anthony and Junior. Junior, yes. So yeah, they're, they're, they're very interesting boys. Uh, Anthony wants to be a me mechanic. Yes. Uh, very quiet, unassuming, yeah. and he sticks to himself. Junior's the opposite. Yeah, he's more out uh, there. Yeah, very out there. He wants to be a Kakadu Ranger. Yeah. Um, and you can yeah. see that again, there's the twinkle in his eye, and yeah. he's, he's got energy and charisma behind him. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think I can see, you know, I'd, I'd love to, to go through Kakadu with him being, yeah. being a ranger or a tour guide. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's. Uh, you, can, you can see what, he, what potential is there. Yes. It's, it's exciting. And it's interesting seeing the kids, as you say, the uh, the different aspirations of the kids. I mean, some of the girls want to be models. They say they want to be models these days, but mm -hmm. others are saying they want to be, um, you know, military police, or they mm -hmm. want to be involved in um, uh, nursing or in veterinary science. Mm -hmm. um, there's a whole range of things they want to do. Um, some of the boys want to be AFL footballers, fine, <laughs> but beyond that, they have got some other, mm. you know, aspirations. Mm. So <clears throat> it's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out in the future. And we've certainly got, we've raised enough money to keep the thing going for the next three years. We've got to keep raising the money. We we have to raise about six hundred thousand dollars a year to make the thing work. Where do you raise your money from? Just from philanthropic. Okay. Uh, donations and yep. trusts yep. and the dinner we, we run each year. We, we raise quite a bit of money at that event. Um, and uh, and the, the government, you know, the federal government give us quite a bit of money for each kid. Yep. Roughly each child costs us 80000 to educate and house for the year. Um, governments will give us um, around about $45,000 plus another a little bit we get from some of the destination schools, which leaves a gap of about um, between twenty-five and $30,000 per student we have to raise. So if you multiply that by 22, you're up around about $600,000. Mm. Um, it's not a small amount. It's no, you've got to keep it going. Yeah. 
and uh, <clears throat> but the kids have graduated the other night. We had all the families from all the different remote communities come down and see the kids. Uh, there was a sense of real optimism and excitement in the room, and uh, with these kids clearly showing some promise in in the opportunities that they're they're finding through MITS. Mm. Um, and all of these parents would be aware that if education is going to be a future foundation stone for those kids in terms yeah, of absolutely. what they can do in life and what contribution they can make and how um, <clears throat> how they can shape a, a worthwhile, fulfilling and happy life. Mm. Um, mm. So it's exciting to see the kids come out of the year you know, with that kind of aspiration. Mm. Some of the kids don't make it, and it's interesting because some of the kids are highly traumatised in their background and their behaviour. They just can't um, behave in a way that's uh, conducive to a good boarding house and so on. And they really make the choice to go back. Sometimes it's family who say, we want the kids back. Um, uh, And on other occasions, the kid just... um, it shows that they're they're not committed to the whole thing at all, and their behaviour goes south, and they start to affect other kids and so on. Mm. But we try and uh, you know not graduating kids as a last resort. We if we if we do if we do send a kid back to their community, we make sure that we make strong contact with the school, the principal, that the child is. Um, very strongly transition back into their school, back into a, a worthwhile program. So it's not as though they're left hanging, mm. but um, and and it's important to make sure there's continuity there. Mm. Mm. So, um, so I suppose it's, it's, it's watch this space. In watch a sense. this space. Yeah. <laughs> and Trinity have been fantastic. The the parents of Trinity have just rallied around. Whether it's with buildings or whether it's helping with the gala dinner or whether it's yeah. um, helping with fundraising. I mean, they, they've been remarkable in all the, uh, the help they've given this little enterprise. Hmm. I mean, that's, that's also off the back of what you put in place when you were the headmaster at Trinity. I think that's a culture that you, you oh, yeah. helped to grow and, and that's been continued on. And uh, yeah, it's Yeah, and I think great. That, and the school's doing it now. And, yeah. and I think that's... That sort of outreach is so important, and not in a patronising way, but we, we do need to be partnering with mm. with other good people in this country, yep. and some of whom don't have the opportunities. Mm. And um, so it's an exciting little project, and exciting, it's been much more complex than we ever thought. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, and it'll have its ups and downs in the future, but. We're getting better at what we do. We're understanding families better. We're understanding the the induction process at the beginning of the year better. We're understanding pedagogy much better, how we teach the kids, how we emphasise their learning, uh, because they come with all sorts of different levels of learning to us, um, how we deal with kids who have been affected by trauma. Um, we're getting better at that. Um, uh, so our boarding protocols are better mm. I think we're getting better at working with our, par- our 
um, volunteers, um, our homework programs I think are improving and uh, our testing regimes, not that we over, you don't over test people because you don't increase the weight of a pig by weighing it in a sense, but um, it is important that testing is realistic both from our point, own point of view to know where these kids, how they're progressing mm. and progression has to be visible. It has to be visible. Learning has to be visible, both to us and to the kids. Mm. That provides the motivation. Mm. And we also have to be able to assess the kids in a way where the schools who take the kids on board uh, are confident that the information we're giving them is um, well benchmarked information, mm. is valid information. Mm. So we're doing a lot of uh, work with EduTest at the moment, who are the scholarship people, to develop tests which are culturally appropriate for kids, uh, many of whom, uh, for whom English is their second, third, fourth or fifth language. Mm. Mm. And uh, so some of these very wordy type scholarship tests, you just it's, it's quite unfair to expose the kids to that. Yeah. So we need to do, be testing concepts and ideas and ideals and progress in different ways. So that, that'll take a little. That'll take another couple of years to sort through. But we're we're actually on the way with that, and I think that's Good. that's an important one, particularly as we go to the communities and select the kids. <clears throat> which, which are the kids are going to who are going to really take up these opportunities, and then at the end of the year admits where, what what level are the kids at in terms of their literacy and mm. literacy. So mm. schools understand that clearly. Mm. <clears throat> well, good luck. Yeah. Look forward to seeing that. Something I'd like to pick up on, and you said it earlier, um, you mentioned um, in, in the same track <coughs> that you were a very average student when you were at school. You're also talking about whether or not you'd uh, do your PhD. And th those two things um, don't, don't quite align, but we spoke about this last time and, and what also prompted me to want to do this podcast with you. Um, and you spoke about a growth curve. Yeah. Um, I'd like you to sort of explain what, what that concept is and what, what your thoughts and feelings are on that. Well, I think we, <clears throat> we tend to educate kids um, in, in large groups and we tend to assume that they're all at the same level of maturity and they all have the same ability spec, you know, uh, uh, roughly the same ability spectrum. Mm. Now, I don't think that's true. I think... <clears throat> Kids grow at different rates, and you'll find some people are mature in their thinking, pretty mature by the age of year 10, and writing very maturely. And, uh, and you'll find some kids are still very young, and even at year 12, um, you'll find kids who are young. My wife, who's in the vet school, says she, she sees girls coming in, they're pretty mature by and large, um, and uh, there's not much more growing up to be done, but the boys um, are quite young and do a lot of growing up in the next four years when she sees them working mm. through vet science. And uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I was young in year 12. I was intellectually immature. Uh, I was probably young in my uh, physical development. Um, and probably I didn't grow up um, in, a, in both of those ways until I was close to the end of second year university. 
Mm. Then I started to sort of really see um, the way I, c- I could really see um, uh, a different way of working in the in the in the subject areas that I was involved in. But I struggled through year twelve, and I struggled through first year university. In second year university, I started to hit hit my straps, and I started it. I think I really caught up with the level of work. My maturity caught up with it. And by third year, I was much more comfortable in the level of work that I was doing, and I ended up with you know a distinction and a credit. Mm. Third year, whereas in the first year, I think I got passes and a credit, and in year twelve, I got um, I don't know. An, a B and a C and the rest were passes or Ds. Mm. <clears throat> that wasn't because I didn't work, but I, I worked quite hard, but I, I, I just didn't. You weren't ready. Yeah, that there was just not that readiness factor in yeah. the way in which I was tackling the issues that mm. had to be tackled. You know, it was a real effort to read a book for me at year 12, a difficult book. Some of my colleagues, like... Um, Tim Colbatch, who reports in the age now, he, he, he would read a book and he would have not only know what the book was about, but he was able to then impose on that all sorts of other dimensions of thinking mm. and analysis that I hadn't gone anywhere near. My, mm. my appreciation of a book was what the book reported and what, what happened in the book um, and maybe a little bit of additional understanding but it was nowhere near the, the, the level of some of my, uh, my colleagues. And my colleagues, you know, a lot of my colleagues were quite mature. And Terry McCran, you'd see his articles in The, uh, the Age. He's a, one of the chief commercial correspondents in The Age. And he was a very bright fellow. And, um, and he, he brought all sorts of different dimensions of thinking to studies of mathematics and economics and so on, whereas I used to accept these things on face value. I suppose that may have been why I did chemistry and physics and pure and applied maths. And, uh, and it was only later on that I, I started to, to grow in the way that I tackled information, tackled um, academic processes, tackled putting ideas together. And, and then when I did my... Um, <clears throat> honest degree I really found something that I was you know really lit me up the, the diatoms and the relationship between mm. diatoms and the environment and the potential for that in terms of um, longitudinal studies and climate change analysis and so on and then in my master's year um, all of the um, the work I did and worked very very hard you know I'd often worked till 11 at night five nights of the week and often I'd sometimes camp in the laboratory and mm. keep using the microscope and keep recording <laughs> and so on. So it's funny how <clears throat> I think it took me a while to get to that point yeah. of growth, of maturity. <clears throat> when you first and explained that to me, um, I connected with it straight away because I, I don't feel like I hit my straps until my late 20s. Yeah. And it's only really been since I've made my return back to education yeah. that I've really had an interest and, and my attention has, has turned to wanting to learn more and study and yeah. really, really putting that on like, like you've just explained. But yeah. all through high school, I, yeah. was, I was average, not, not, um, you not did well, anything but less. Yeah, I yeah. did well, yeah. but not great. Yeah. Um, university I cruised through yeah um, and then I spent a lot of my 20s sort of dabbling in this and that yeah and, uh, yeah it's I think when you find that growth curve and you go for it 
You, you really, yeah. Then it happens, and um, I'm and enjoying I think, that. I think the to that point, <clears throat> as educators in schools, we must never write kids off mm. because uh, all these kids that we're dealing with are developing at different rates and and with different skills and there's no doubt about it you see kids um, at school and you see particularly in the growth spurt of year nine um, it's as if people only have a certain complement of energy to use and during that growth spurt physical growth spurt of year nine their intellectual um, you know um, <clears throat> application goes down mm-hmm. and then later on when they the growth the physical growth thing stops or reduces then the academic goes off mm-hmm. and increases again. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. almost as if you've, people have only got a certain potential mm-hmm. portion right. of energy. And uh, I, I think it's very important for schools to embrace all those kids across the whole spectrum because mm-hmm. who knows when a kid you know, who scored <clears throat> 60 at school as an ATAR then goes on and is offered a PhD and then does a fellowship in science later on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had one boy once who scored about 60 in his ATAR and he, um, <clears throat> you know, he was uh, fairly average and he had some uh, learning issues. Um, and then, of course, uh, he went through his university course in arts and then uh, in the end up, ended up doing, achieving a PhD in history. Wow. You know, again, that's, that's a growth curve. That's a big growth <clears throat> So I think we're in schools. We're seeing young people at all stages of their growth curve, on all all stages of their growth journey: emotional, spiritual, uh, academic, uh, intellectual, physical, um, social. You know, and uh, I think it's important that we're mindful of all those growth curves operating in all those different areas, mm. Mm. and. Uh, we need to be nurturing young people in all of those different areas, um, knowing that <clears throat> as teachers we, we don't really know where that growth curve will go mm. in the long term. Mm. And uh, often <clears throat> the growth curve goes well beyond what we might have expected. Mm. When I was in year 12, or I think it was second, second year 12, the, I remember one of the teachers coming up to me and saying, "Oh." Well done! You you got through in the end, and we, we thought you would never get to the university. Wow. So, and that was and he was being sincere, and he was, yeah. he was saying, "Well done." But um, <clears throat> I think that you know, as I've said, you probably uh, started to do a lot more and a lot better in two or three years after that. Mm. Mm. Um, we'll finish up with um, a question I'd like to ask. What advice would you give to graduate teachers who, who are just starting and then for someone like me who's 10 years down the track from there, does that advice change at all? Um, <clears throat> I, I think it's... Um, that there are a few things. One is when you first start teaching, um, that daily engagement with students and preparation and assessment is a very demanding operation if it's done well. And um, I think the, the energy requirements of a young teacher are significant. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but I think, 
I've often encouraged uh, young teachers going into their third or fourth or fifth year to to start writing their own programs, whether it's on the computer or whether it's um, um, whether they're books or whether they're um, podcasts or whatever, because I think <clears throat> there's an enormous opportunity there for a young teacher to be creative and to pass that creativity on in the context of the, the subjects that they teach to young people. And there's no doubt about it, I think, that a young a teacher who's been teaching for four or five years and then creates a new program, a new course, a new approach, um, provides new um, resources to um, explain and demonstrate some phenomenon or to <coughs> cover uh, some new area of discipline. <clears throat> the energy that is conveyed as a, as a young, young teacher develops his or her own programs in their own creative way. The energy that's conveyed to young people through that is, is enormous. Mm. And <clears throat> I, I think that's very important to be a creator mm. as a teacher. <clears throat> Excuse me, please. Some people start their teaching and then go on being teachers by delivering programs and delivering courses at the same level over the next 20 years. And I, and I think it's a bit of a pity because I think that um, teachers need to experiment with new ways of uh, developing information, of presenting information, and, and new and exciting ways. And I think that can be really influential on young people. Mm. And I think the perspective of young teachers, I mean, a young teacher will teach something in a different way from me. And that's very appropriate because that young person, that young teacher, has come up within the modern um, era, uh, within technologies, within the uh, information that's around, within the interactions that are around, the social mores and so on. And all of those things uh, can be conveyed very effectively and are very effective in communication with young people. And so teaching young people teaching in a creative way is a highly influential thing. Mm. And I think the other thing is that <clears throat> the young people, uh, students are very affected by what teachers say, the way they say it, the energy they convey, um, the way they explain things. And I always used to say to staff, it's very, every word that we say as teachers is is taken on board, is... is um, uh, taken on board and, in a sense, analysed by by our students. Uh, whether we're harsh in the way we say things, whether we're encouraging with the way that we say things, um, whether we <clears throat> are questioning in the way we um, present things, um, whether we are enduring in our patience, um, uh, whether we have uh, uh, a very resilient um, system of routines that we we follow, all of those messages, all of those things provide messages to our young people. And all of our young people learn enormous amounts from all of those different kinds of messages, which are apart from the content and the process of the academic learning. Mm. And... Um, so we as, we as teachers um, convey 
uh, an enormous range of messages and influences to young people who take them on and then we'll also model those mm. and ultimately we've got to be models we, we as teachers we are models but one of the things that we do is to um, <clears throat> we need to model that we need to model the values that we talk about as teachers mm. whether we're on holidays or whether we're in school mm. or whether wherever we are mm. and sure as eggs some young person will be watching us in the supermarket as to how we deal with the uh, the um, um, the checkout person mm. or mm. on the station as to how we ask a question of the person manning the station or whatever mm. <clears throat> that modeling is is so important mm. um, so and I think within the mix of developing one's teaching profession um, first of all getting a really good education, go as far as you can with your degree, um, uh, then setting up your routines as a, as a young teacher, then being creative, then, then going forward and, and writing and creating new resources and new approaches and so on. Then I think to go overseas would be is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I think to teach overseas you inevitably, um, <clears throat> invariably, connect with another culture with another uh, uh, with another group of people who have come up in a different way with different emphases and you see different th ways of doing things mm -hmm. and I think you then bring that back and you <clears throat> embed that in your own understandings and you bring that back into your own country mm. and uh, and you envelop you you'd further develop the perceptions the uh, perspectives and skills and so on that you bring to the teaching profession in your own country. Mm. So th those are the three, the three things, and I think that <clears throat> uh, within all of teaching, of course, the most, one of the most important things is the relationship you have with the students you teach. Um, and I was talking to somebody this morning about the new school, Rendell College up in Darwin for Aboriginal kids and white kids, and I, I said, look, you, you've really got to emphasise that to go out to the people, to the communities that you serve, the, the re remote communities, to go and visit the families, to visit the people, to get to know them, to get their trust. All that's so important and is a foundation stone of actually being a good teacher. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> I, I've always thought that the informal interactions with kids outside the classroom are as important as the formal inside the classroom. And that's why sp the sporting field's an important one. That's why walking through the quadrangles, the conversations there are important. Standing on the street corner, traffic lights, it's conversations with parents and students are really important. Um, camps, important. But all of that is about um, consolidating and further developing relationships, which then lead to good learning. Mm. Um, you taught me... Um when I was in Year 7, we, we had my um, meeting to come to Trinity. Um, and, and the lesson that I learned was whenever you saw me, you said, Hi, Stuart. And the yeah. power of the name. The name. And you, you modeled that right. beautifully. And, and I'm teaching that now as well. Yeah. The power of knowing your student's name. Yeah. Um, and that's the hard bit. And easy once you practice. Um, but it's so powerful. I think that's right. I think you. It's one of the hardest things you can do is to learn the names of your students. 
and a lot of people emphasize um, educational theory and all of that involves but forget the names mm. it should be the other way around mm. because the name calling a boy or a girl by name indicates uh, a personal interest in that boy or girl That's right. and um, I think that the uh, <clears throat> you can you can uh, you can put forward and practice all the educational theory under the sun but if you don't have that personal connection mm. um, then you don't have that um, you don't have that uh, relational um, the, the, the relational tie mm. with the young person mm. with whom you're teaching so um, <clears throat> I think you're right and it, it takes a lot of effort to learn names and to continue to use names and to I think the other thing that used to help me was to know names, was to learn names, and to also know something about the student. And often made, that mm. made the name easier to remember. Mm -hmm. If you knew that little Johnny had played in the 14C footy team or they'd been on some camp or he'd done well in the maths test, it helped to learn, helped to remember the name. When you've got 1,200 <coughs> students at your school, <laughs> you've got to keep. And you were able to do it. That's uh, that's one thing that a lot of people say, and they speak about you highly. And they say he knew my name. Oh uh, well, you tried to try to anyway. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't think the computer, the, the old brain, didn't work all that well all the time. But it, you tried to do it. Yeah. Um, but it was definitely no but it, so, yeah, I think you've touched on a really important thing there that that. In the name, there is uh, uh, so much in terms of the relationship, mm. um, and by using the name, you're you're saying I care enough about you to know your name, and to want to know about you as a person. That's right. Yeah. And uh, and I value that, and and that for each individual is such a such an important thing. Mm. I think. Mm. Rick, thank you very much. It's thank you for letting us speak. I'm sorry, I've, I've rambled on a bit, Stuart. No, that's why we're here. I hope that's, uh, no, I've, I've that that's really enjoyed. <clears throat> I've really enjoyed this afternoon. Well, I really enjoyed chatting, and uh, I hope I hope this is of some use. Right, it will, and it yeah, will, especially to me, it already has been, and hopefully to people who are listening, it will oh, be thanks. help to them as well. Great. Well, cool. and uh, for anybody who's out there listening, all the very best, and uh, um, in whatever you're doing. And uh, uh, no doubt you'll be making some wonderful contribution with with other people, and I think that's mm. the essence of this of this good world. If we yeah. get out there and make good contributions with other people, well, we can't do any better. Yeah. So, so thank you. Nice way to finish. Good on you. Thank you.